In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. John the Baptist was the goat, G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. He would never proclaim himself that, though. Um, the one who came after him called him that. Among men, there is no one greater than John. And this is the highest praise in history, I, I suppose, considering, it, considering who it came from. Uh, and that same one who came after John also called him the least of all people. The lowliest person is ahead of him. In the same breath, Jesus exalts John and puts him in his place behind the lowliest person. And by now you know I'm attracted to paradox. Um, Cyprian Smith writes, the reality of God is accessed or grasped only within the tension and clash of opposites. We don't like to sit in the clash and tension of opposites. But I invite you to do so for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. And here we have another paradox, of course, the greatest, greatest of all time is the least of all time. What reality does this reveal? Well, we, what we know about John is that he was the ideal Jew. He was a good man, says Josephus, and he exhorted Jews to live righteous lives. Again, this is Josephus writing, to practice justice to their fellows and piety toward God, and in so doing, to join in baptism. So as you are already doing, then you join in baptism to acknowledge this and repent of what things you're not doing or things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Correction. Make your path straight. Everyone admired John but did not want to be him, however. It, it was far too demanding. John was a popular prophet, charismatic. He spoke, he spoke truth to power, if you want to call it that. Yes, he did. He was an ascetic, a man of the earth, and not much more than the earth, clothed in a camel hair coat, uh, a hairy mantle, as it is described in Zechariah 13, 4, strange language to us. It's not the mantle, of course, above your fireplace. It's a garment marking an individual as a prophet. John, uh, John's diet was locusts and no wine to cover their taste and wash them down. He lives in the wilderness and bathes in river water. Uh, if he were alive today, uh, people would be clamoring for him to have his own reality show. <laughs> Ironically, of course, John would absolutely resist that. And this brings us, I think, to his most important quality. His life was not one of relentless self-improvement or self-promotion through asceticism, heroism, moralism, as good as all those things are. What's most important about John is that his life was subsumed in the life of another, but not obliterated, subsumed by the life of another, the one for whom John paved the way and ushered in. All four New Testament evangelists agreed there is no good news, no gospel of Jesus Christ without John the Baptist. I'm still pondering that. Why did, why did God do it this way and have to send another human being to usher in Jesus? Also a human being, God become the, a God the son of man who became the perfect human being. And here was John the Baptist, the best of what preceded Jesus, ushering Jesus in into a new kingdom, into a new society. And this firebrand who recognized no superior was utterly submissive before the one whose coming he lived and died to illuminate, to be a witness, to point away from himself to Jesus Christ. This is John's destiny. 
In our gospel reading for today, John agrees with Jesus and happily reciprocates. Jesus has put John in his place, and John puts Jesus in his place. John says, he must increase and I must decrease. And John is delighted to be put in his place, on location in the wilderness by the river, to announce the main attraction, the one whose shoes he is not worthy to tie. John puts it this way in our passage in our reading from this morning that Mary read. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Jesus gets the bride. John, what does he get? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe the bridesmaid, I'm not sure. (laughs) But he's thrilled. Not only does he accept it, he's joyful about it. This is remarkable. Which of us, when given the opportunity to put the spotlight on ourselves, refuses? And not only that, but then shines a light on someone else instead. I had a story here about something that happened to me in California where I was... I realized then, though, if I tell you that story, I would be um, shining the light on myself. It's a story about showing off, by the way. I'll just give you a little bit of the story. You can ask me about it later, okay? But when someone does something we can't do or better than we can do it, and that person is not an extension of us like our child, do we take joy and delight in and for that person? At our Stephen ministry training this past Wednesday, Ann McCarthy reminded us that, that when we are Steve, as Stephen ministers are providing care to our care receivers and others are around also providing care, such as family members in a hospital, for instance. Ann says, don't forget, we need to be in the background praying. In the background praying. Present but not large and in charge. And the hallmark of Stephen ministry is anonymity and confidentiality. Not look at what we're doing. (laughs) My chaplaincy supervisor and instructor this past summer, Sally Miller, told us that our job is to do nothing well. John is the greatest. He can't get any greater, any better. He has reached the pinnacle of human greatness. What is there to do when you have reached the pinnacle, when you have reached the top? There's only one thing to do, descend. John preaches the gospel of descent in sharp contrast to our psalm this morning. A song of ascent, of going up, of moving from a difficult present to a happy future, sowing with tears and reaping with joy. And if John hadn't gone down, and if Jesus hadn't gone down, we won't be able to go up. Sowing with tears and reaping with joy. Um, There is in our gospel reading, of course, this morning an ominous foreshadowing, for John had not yet been put in prison. For all of his troubles, his devotion, his piety, his goodness, his courage. John is locked in a dungeon and brutally executed by King Herod and the first lady of Judea, the king's brother's wife, whom he illegally married. And John confronts him. Fearless. And of course, what, we, what many know of John's story is the daughter Salome dances and brings John's head on a platter to her mother as popularized in the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, in which she finds John Salome finds John, played by a somewhat over-the-top Charlton Heston, 
quite attractive, such as Hollywood. This isn't Hollywood. The climatic pathos of the story is not John's beheading, but John's question from the darkness of the dungeon, which is itself a deeply dark and doubting response, antiphon, if you want to call it that, to his proclamation, behold the Lamb of God. And John now asks to his disciples, go ask Jesus this, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we wait for another? And that is also the question of Advent because it is open to it, invites Jesus' response in the darkness. Tell John of what you have seen and heard. Remind him of the good news. I am the one who came before you, John. I've got you. I am with you in your darkness, the light in your darkness. And John and Jesus are on parallel tracks. They're cousins, they're friends, they're so different from one another, but they are on parallel tracks. And what happens to John also happens to Jesus. John's death at the hands of the powers and the principalities are a preview of Jesus' own death. But of course, those parallel tracks, Jesus' tracks extends before our time and after our time. Jesus is the one who came before John, as well as after John. Jesus is the one who comes into our time from the beginning of time. In the beginning was the word and takes us beyond our end. And John's entire purpose is to announce the beginning of the end. There is an end in sight when God will make all things right and all things well. So at the end of this sermon, it'll take me just a few minutes to get to the end, by the way. I come back to our paradox. How can John be both the greatest and the least? Because he is all in, in both his faith and his doubt. He's all in with the one who does not concern himself, Jesus Christ, with greatness or even glory for that matter. God does not need to say, I am the greatest of all time. God does not need to compete or clamor for greatness. God is not in a continuum, of, a continuum of greatness and glory. And our ideas of greatness simply disappear when we are all in. And being all in does not only mean or even mostly mean you and me, Jesus, we're doing this, yay us. It means, as the apostle remind, Paul reminds us, that we are in Christ, hidden with Christ towards our, our identity, our security, our joy. And when we are hidden with Christ in this way, we don't need nor will we want to say, look at me. All paradoxes are all contained finally in an all-embracing unity and the resolving force of that unity is love. It's love by which all opposites are reconciled and restored. Who here has not experienced the bitterness of sin with its myriad manifestations, which is born of our desire to be great, to become like God? And then in the midst of that sin and that darkness, the sweetness of love with its singular and particular and infinite capacity to absorb all of sin's toxins. 
And that is born of our desire to give ourselves to God who first gave himself to us and became the least of us for the sake of love. And I'm not trying to make this sermon about you, but <laughs> Anne gave us this book, or Stephen Minister's, this little book, The Greatest Thing in All the World, and you can guess what that is. It's love, because true love does not concern itself with greatness because it is focused always on the joy of the other, as John was for his friend Jesus. We parents know this. We don't need or want to be great for our kids. We don't compete with our children. That's because we love them. And that's what God wants also. And John's baptism of repentance, by the way, is a response of love to God's love, our love responding to God's love. We repent and change not to get God to love us, but because he already loves us. And repenting means fixing broken relationships and so doing one's best to restore community. And bringing sinners to repentance is more likely to occur with care than with condemnation. First Thessalonians, it's all about caring for the body, you know. Encourage the faint-hearted, admonish those who are sinning, bring them back, bring them back to life, bring them back to God's goodness, bring them back to love. Helping people to learn to help others is a better way of helping them to help themselves out of the practices of sin and into the practices of righteousness. A couple weeks ago, I gave the youth a little nightlight. I told them to write whatever they like on the nightlight, um, just as a representative of who God is in their lives and who they also might be thinking of and praying for, who might be experiencing maybe a little bit of darkness. And I put on my nightlight my two children and my two grandkids, and I stick it there in the kitchen. Every time I look at it, I pray for them, and I pray that God will lighten their darkness. We are nightlights for others, showing the way in the dark. We are guides. We are not heroes. We're showing the way in the dark, but we're also glowing in anticipation of the greater light that is to come in the morning. And so like John, we can all be tiny lights of love to help draw all people to the Father of lights and to his son Jesus, God from God, light from light, who is the light of the world. Amen.